Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Today's episode is brought to you by Basecap. So I remember when, you know, really building companies as an entrepreneur, how really frustrating is when you have people missing out deadlines, there's people that are not copied on emails, and then, you know, like everyone ends up failing in the pursuit of, of, of accomplishing things. So email is really great when you're doing one-to-one conversations, but when you have a ton of people there copied, you know, there's going to be people that are going to be missing out on stuff. So for project management, I actually found Basecamp and I found it to be a really fantastic solution. You know, basically what they are is a collaboration type of uh, tool that allows people to really engage with their offer message boards, the to-dos, the schedules, their document sharing, the group chats, and other tools that are going to help you in taking the game of your company to the next level. So go to Basecamp.com forward slash dealmakers and sign up today for their 30-day free trial. And there is no credit card that is required and you can cancel at any time. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a pretty exciting guest. You know, we're going to be talking about building and scaling. Uh, also, there's going to be a tons of lessons that this guest is going to be sharing with us about his journey raising money and having no clue on how to raise money. I mean, now obviously they've raised a ton, but, and they're in this rocket ship, but we're going to learn quite a bit here. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Anton Katz. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. That's a very high expectation bar you're already setting out there, but I'm, I'm <laughs> equally excited to, to be here. So thank you very much for having me. Thanks for the opportunity. And uh, yeah. Let's do a little of a walk through memory lane here, Anton. So, so I mean, you you traveled quite a bit, you know, when when you were born and growing up, uh, you know, Ukraine, then Israel, obviously now in the U.S. But give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Uh, <laughs> life was uh, life was interesting growing up. You know, I I come from a from a great family. I'm very very lucky. Honestly, I was born in Ukraine. Um, grew up in a city of Donetsk uh, until I was 10, and Donetsk is, is, is where a lot of the fighting is happening now, unfortunately. Uh, we moved with our entire family, you know, mother, father, sister, grandparents to Israel in 1990. And uh, yeah, that was kind of like, a, that was interesting because I think as a, as a 10-year-old, you, you get to a country without speaking the language at all. Um, that was kind of like an adjustment period there. Moreover, you know, six months after we landed in Israel, the Gulf War started. So we were sitting in, in bomb shelters uh, with, with rockets kind of like raining down on the country. Uh, so, yeah, but, you know, at, at the same time, I, I honestly can't complain. Um, I've had a great upbringing. I had a great childhood. I have a really, really loving family, um, which is, you know, has been supportive in, in many cases, even when they, they, they really don't understand what the hell I'm doing. You know. So you were quite competitive even at 15. You know, what, what, what was this thing about shooting? <laughs> what got you into shooting? Yeah, I don't know. There was a, I always, I think I was always fairly competitive in, in a lot of things that I used to do uh, and played quite a lot of different sports uh, growing up. Uh, you know, I was in athletics. I, I was playing tennis for a while. Uh, and then at 15, I started uh, uh, doing sports shooting, Olympic shooting. Um, I think at 16 and a half, I, I was on the Israeli uh, junior shooting team. 
um, <laughs> at, at 18, um, I went to Barcelona for the World Championship in shooting, and I was very fortunate to win the first uh, uh, the gold medal there. Um, and yeah, and then um, it kind of uh, you know I I joined the the military, the mandatory service in Israel afterwards, so it was a little bit difficult to continue competing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but it was uh, yeah a, a really interesting part in my life actually. I still but I'm sure you were a lot of the things from then. You were quite the rock star probably in the army when it came to shooting. No, and uh, doing any competitions <laughs> there with the, with the peers, that's for sure. Eh? <laughs> so, so, so it, let's talk it, was, joining... it wasn't very fair. <laughs> <laughs> so joining the army, I mean, obviously that's the um, that's what everyone needs to do in Israel, and I think that that you know gives definitely a lot of uh, desire and 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 ethic too. So, how do you think that um, that that joining the army and doing that program has shaped who you are? Well, I mean, you know. The thing is, like you said, right, the military service in Israel is mandatory. It's mandatory for for boys and for girls, in a way. Uh, so everybody goes. Um, I think some of the interesting thing is that, you know, again, everybody goes. And it's not that you can, you know, if you come from a certain status, you can pick your unit or anything like that. You you really get into this melting pot. You're You're serving side by side with people that come from very, very different backgrounds from you, whether they, they were, come from immigrant parents or whether they were born in Israel, you know, the, the different languages they speak, the different things that they've, uh, you know, and, and different socioeconomic environments as well. So I think that the first thing you do in Israel, which is kind of good, is that everybody is aligned, you know, you come out of the military, having served with very, very different people from you, different cities, different everything. So I think, you know, that that's kind of like a, that's a big, big thing that you get from it. Um, and the other thing is, you know, everybody has a different military service, especially in Israel. It's it's a it's it's a wide variety of roles that you can have. But the the one thing that prevails there is you you come out with a feeling feeling that you can trust yourself to with the unknown a little bit. You know, it's it's a uh, people tend to try and, and over plan and 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 kind of like make sure that everything progresses exactly as they see and then that breaks always when you touch reality you know life is unexpected like look at what happened over the past three years you know between the, the pandemic that nobody thought we were, we're going to see what's happening right now with the market life is full of unknowns and i think the military is actually pretty good about you know getting you into the mindset of like hey you're going to face a couple of weird situations and you should trust yourself that you are going to persevere that you are going to uh, you're going to be able to handle them or you're going to be able to continue forward. So I think that those are kind of like some of the major major stuff that, that comes out. Like that's some of the culture there that, that I appreciate. Now, in your case, you know, going from shooting to computers is quite a quite a different path. Eh? <laughs> like uh, computer science, like, like why computer science out of all things? You know, well, I mean, shooting, while it's, I, I really love the, the subject. And the thing is like, again, you know, sport shooting, Olympic shooting is very different from the kind of like movie style shooting that you see. I've, I've used this <laughs> example before, but I, I can't stress it enough. It's not like a John Wick getting in, like clearing rooms and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> shooting, Olympic shooting, you can you can watch it. It's like, you know, one shot a minute. It's very meditative. It's all in your head. You have to control your heartbeat. So it's really, really interesting because you're constantly just dealing with yourself, really just with yourself yeah. when you're doing this kind of stuff. So, you know, like it's, it's not a, as extreme as you would think, you know, going from uh, Olympic shooting to, to computer science, <laughs> because you're really with yourself there too. But I also, 
I think it was between two professions. Pretty much everybody in my family, like literally pretty much everybody in family is a doctor. Uh, so I always thought that at some point I'm likely just going to be a doctor. And I was just very attracted to technology. I really, really loved technology from a young age. Um, you know, when I was 10, my grandfather, uh, as we were leaving uh, Soviet Union, my grandfather gave me two books about programming. We didn't have computers. Actually, I didn't get my first computer until I was 11, 11 and a half. Uh, neighbors gave us a computer they weren't using. But I, I dived into the programming books and I was like reading it cover to cover. I, I started programming on paper. I was writing down code on paper. Like I was really obsessed with it. And I think, you know, over time it became very uh, obvious to me that that's the profession that I really like. That's the stuff that I'm attracted to. And it's exactly the same today. I am really passionate about technology. I'm an engineer, you know, like I, I tinker with everything. I build a lot of things still. Um, I, I try to get involved as deeply as I can with uh, anything that has to do with engineering. So it, it became it became obvious. So it's not actually, you know, it's 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 not too dissimilar from shooting, but it's, uh, it's something that has been a passion of mine for a while. Now, in your case, computer science, you know, happened at MIT. I mean, I'm sure that your parents were very, very proud. But uh, but right after MIT, you know, what you decided to you do know, was... a funny story about that, actually. Oh, yeah, let's hear it. Let's hear it. <laughs> So first of all, you know, when I left the when I left the military, I started competing again, and you know, the idea was to um, uh, I, I was hoping to get to the 2004 Olympics. So this is like you know 2002, 2003, and the Olympic Committee of Israel basically said like, hey, you know, if you're going to the Olympics, you have to basically say you're not going to school. Like this is you have to dedicate your life to to going to the Olympics, which is totally reasonable. You know, it takes so much work and effort to get there. And so I said, okay, I'm going to do it. I, I really wanted to do it. I really wanted to represent my country. I promised I'm going to apply to one school and one school only. That's my dream school. If I get in there, it's done. I'm, I'm, I'm done with shooting and I'm going to, to the school. And then, you know, like yeah, MIT made some sort of a mistake on the admissions, accepted me and <laughs> the rest is history. But wow. when, I, when I got into MIT, I, was, I remember I was talking to my grandfather, who was, you know, professor of medicine. And he's like, He's like, what are you going to do? And I'm like, well, you know, I'm going to go and study computers. So I'm going to be an engineer. He's like, and, and you know, he's phenomenal. He, like, you know, fought in World War II. And he basically was like, he's like, I don't know if you can ever make money doing that. He's like, it's you, you, you probably want to be either a doctor or a lawyer. And that was exactly that. And I'm like, no, listen, I mean, I'm going to do it. And he's like, is it at least a good school? <laughs> like, I promise you, it's, it's a really nice school. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so that was That's actually the, the first feeling there was disappointment, but the, but the parents are were were really supportive. Of course. So so you know the good news here is that right after MIT, you also had the opportunity of experiencing. I mean, obviously now you're in in the startup world, venture world, and but 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 you also had the opportunity of of seeing how the larger you know really successful companies you know operate, and you did spend you know some time in Microsoft. So. What, what was your take out of being at Microsoft? Yeah, so I joined Microsoft right out of school, um, and I joined the Windows Live division. Microsoft was going through, you know, restructuring at that time, and we were trying to figure out what kind of company they're going to be uh, going forward, especially as online was becoming a lot more more interesting and social media was becoming more interesting. So for Microsoft, you know, I had a, I had a really, really awesome team there, and I learned how to do things, or at least I got exposed to how to do things at, at an enormous scale, you know? And, and there's great things about it, and there were things that were just not super compatible with me uh, about it. I really like the fact that the influence, you know, like when we released a feature, 
2 million people touched that feature day one. That was crazy, crazy. You're, you're thinking like, do you know what 2 million people is like? It's, it's an enormous scale. So I think, you know, getting used to that, getting used to that kind of impact was, was really cool to see. And, and the machinery behind it was phenomenal. You know, how do we think about privacy? How do we think about security? Like all the stuff that nobody keeps in mind when they release software to the masses. So that was really challenging. At the same time, the, the pace was tough. You know, I just got out of school. I really wanted to build things. But for us to, to release anything took months. And so ultimately what happened is that I was looking for something a little bit faster pace. Uh, and that's when I joined, uh, you know, a, a small startup in, in New York uh, that built uh, trading systems for the financial markets. Uh, and it was called Broadway Technology, uh, led by uh, Tyler Moller and Joshua Wolski. There, you know, I, for the first time, I saw like what a startup operates like, you know, and this is this is some of the best engineers that, that I've ever met. Uh, and we're able to release very, very quickly. We're able to innovate very quickly and and still operate at a very, very high scale because over time, some of the largest institutions in the world were actually our clients. So very, very different experiences, you know, in between Microsoft and then immediately afterwards going to a very, very small uh, company where I think, you know, we were 15 people when I joined. Uh, and that's actually where I met my co-founder that is now my co-founder, Talos. And there you were for about six years and, and, and a half. So what kept you for so long there? I mean, that in startup years, that's like dog years, you know, it's, it's, it's a enormous. lot of time. Yeah. Of course, but you know, the beautiful thing about, about Broadway is that, especially, and, and the same holds true for Talos right now, right? When you get to build something from the ground up, you get to kind of influence the culture. You get to build the kind of company that you want to work at. So, you know, we went from, when I joined, we were again, like somewhere around 15 employees. Uh, Broadway went eventually to 200 and something, became the largest provider of trading technologies for the south side sector. But the team was phenomenal. We interviewed everybody. We made sure that everybody was a, was the right culture fit for us. You know, we it, it was a really family atmosphere. So it was it was great to grow up there. I, I got to learn how, you know, to, to build and to scale a startup how to interact, also, honestly, what not to do sometimes, you know? Um, so it was a really good lesson. It was a very comfortable place to be in. So, you know, when I got the opportunity to join AQR, which is, of course, you know, at the time was uh, one of the top two, one of the top three quantitative asset managers in the world, um, that was a very, very tough decision to go from something that you've participated, that you've influenced so much to build out of, and then join uh, a company where you're going to be you know, at a very senior position, but at the same time, like it's not your company that you've built from the ground up. So yeah, so I stayed at Broadway because we've built that company from the ground up, and it was uh, that that was an easy thing to do. And then you also met your co-founder there. So I mean, it was a what a what a pivotal you know experience in your career, and and eventually you know you ended up giving your notice. You went to AQR Capital Management to become the head of trading there, and. Uh, and then eventually, you know, it's time. It's time. You know, it's you're getting the opportunity knocking on your door to become an entrepreneur. So, what was what was that? Uh, what was that journey like? Going from ideation all the way to to launch. <laughs> so, so you're absolutely right. So, I met Ethan at at Broadway, and we we joined, you know, like uh, six months apart. While I joined AQR to become the head of trading technology, um, Ethan continued at Broadway and over time became the chief architect of Broadway. So a very, very senior role there in the technology organization. Ultimately, what happened is, you know, 
AQR is, is a phenomenal place. Very academic, uh, very transparent in nature. You could collaborate with everybody, you know, like very different from a lot of uh, hedge funds out there that, that tend to operate in a siloed mode where it's, it's really, you know, everything is about returns for any one particular team. AQR was very, very good always in terms of collaboration. So a great place to be in. Ultimately, the reason why, you know, like you, you're talking about ideation is towards about uh, 2016, 2017, it became very apparent that, you know, something is going on in digital assets. So my background, you know, at MIT, I did uh, computer science, but I also focused quite a lot on cryptography. Um, and then as a result, was in touch with some of the community there. So I got to see the early Bitcoin paper, um, but really didn't pay as much attention to it as I should have. But when I was at AQR, you first started seeing the, you know, the signs that a, that a true asset is a, a true asset class is being built. You're starting to see that, hey, you know, there might be institutional involvement here that will have to take place for this asset to, to, to get established. And that became an obsession. You know, I was thinking like, I'm an engineer. I'm an engineer in the financial markets. Like you're seeing this evolution happening before your eyes. It became a no-brainer that you have to be involved to some extent. So I initially tried, you know, to get involved inside AQR and, and they were super supportive. You know, we, we did all kinds of projects, but ultimately it's, you know, what I know how to do, what, what you know, and, and Ethan as well, what we know how to do is we know how to build infrastructure that is used by multiple organizations. So, you know, we, we had a couple of different ideas. Ultimately, we landed on um, solving some of the problems that we solved in capital markets, but solving them in crypto. And really, for the first time, connecting institutions to crypto, but using the tools that they understand, that they know, that they, they're familiar with from capital markets. So that's kind of like, you know, the, the initial idea. Initial idea was actually starting a fund, but we we moved away from it very quickly because just honestly, like I don't know how to do it. Ethan doesn't know how to do it. We're engineers. This is, we build systems, we don't build funds. But when we started building the infrastructure, it became very apparent that, you know, the kind of problems that we're seeing through the ecosystem in terms of connectivity, execution, institutional tools will be relevant to any institution that's getting in um, and trying to actually trade digital assets. Um, and, and that's kind of like the, uh, the starting point of the company for us. Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So. I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. 
And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. So at what point do you guys realize, hey, let's give our notice and, and let's do this full time? It was uh, towards the, you know, um, probably the beginning of 2018 is when we, 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 you know, Ethan and I kept talking and Ethan is incredible. You know, he's able to dive into, uh, dive into matters very, very, very deeply understand them. Um, and, and that's, you know, still the case today. And that's exactly the role that he's playing, obviously, with the company. Ethan, uh, I called him at some point, talked to him about digital assets. He's like, I haven't looked at it too much. But then within the next like three weeks, he was already an expert in what's going on. He took classes. He, he, you know, he experimented with it a little bit. He's like, yeah, this is, this is something super interesting. We should do this. So this was, you know, the beginning of 2018. And we started talking about what can we do? How can we do it? We gave notices. We started um, writing a sample code. We started writing, uh, you know, initial code, uh, the two of us, and trying to figure out like what things will actually look like. And then I, probably, you know, um, months away from there, we spoke to the first VC. Honestly, just because somebody, we, we didn't know even what a VC world was. We, it, none of us ever raised capital, ever. So we spoke to the first VC because one of our friends said like, hey, you know, these guys are really connected to crypto. Chat with them and see how they're thinking about your idea. And that pivoted into actually getting an offer almost on the spot from that VC. And that was a notation capital. That's amazing. Now, for the people, and we're, we'll talk about VCs and money in just a little bit, but before doing that, for the people that are listening to get it, what ended up being the business model of the company? How do you guys make money with Talos Trading? Talos, in general, is, uh, you know, when we started, obviously, we were a bilateral trading platform, which basically means institutions connect through Talos to trade digital assets, right? So we have connectivity to multiple exchanges, we connect to multiple dealers. Uh, today, we connect to multiple custodians, we connect to settlement networks, we have quite a lot of services. But at its core, in the beginning, it was really like, hey, we are going to give you the opportunity to trade in an institutional way. So that means smart order routing, that means you know uh, reliable price uh, discovery, that means quite a lot of different tools. The way we make money is we charge, uh, you know, we, we have uh, the steering infrastructure, but effectively the volume that goes through the system is how we charge. So the more volume through the system, that, that's that's kind of like a tie into the revenue of the company, and that was the, the very beginning. And now, of course, it's 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 a little bit different, but that's the that's the initial kind of like revenue for us, yeah. And let, let let's talk about money now. Like, how much capital have you guys raised to date? We raised roughly up until now. We raised roughly one hundred fifty million dollars. And how has it been the the journey? Because you know, I know that for you guys, you enter this thing and you had no idea about fundraising, so. I'm sure there was a, a quite a, a bit of a spaghetti that you had to throw on the wall. Yeah, I mean, I think you said it. <laughs> that's that's it's not very far from reality because you know when we so initially, you know, when you get into the space, you we didn't know anything about fundraising. So the very first thing is we said we don't know anything about it. We're just not going to do it. And we wanted to chat with a couple of people, but really, Ethan and I said, as much as we can, let's just support it ourselves and, and then see if we have a strong business to stand on and kind of like grow it organically. Uh, and that was, you know, without a doubt, looking back, complete mistake, complete, complete mistake. And I'm, I'm very happy that the people educated us not to do that. Uh, because in our specific business, the relationship that we got from the VCs, uh, the, the kind of 
you know, the, the information we got from them, the, uh, the connection that they've opened in the industry has been invaluable for us. But like you said, when we joined, we, we spoke to, to, you know, uh, to a few people. Notation seemed to get the point immediately. So, you know, they kind of like came in the next day, literally, and said, hey, we have a check ready for you. We want to sponsor this book. We believe in you guys. And we think you also should talk to these people. And they connected us to Castle Island, uh, which became an investor. They connected us to Autonomous. They connected us to Founder Collective. Those all became investors very, very quickly. So over the next, like, I think, like three weeks, uh, that round was, was done. Uh, but yeah, but you know, we honestly we we just didn't know. We didn't know what to ask for. We didn't know how to think about valuations. We didn't know how to think about you know dilution. Um, and I think uh, you know we were lucky that we were dealing with investors and VCs that, that were v- willing to educate and were not taking advantage of us. But I also heard of tons of other founders that are getting in and don't have the the you know the kind of investors that we have. And as a result get into deals that are very suboptimal for them in the long term. Anton, out of fundraising then, what, what would you say, you know, has been your biggest lesson? I, you know, I think that there's a few. I think that first and foremost is never, ever, ever do it by yourself without getting, a, getting proper advice. You know, and that advice is not a, hey, you know, chat with a couple of people and ask them how, how they did it. This is, you have to talk to trusted advisors you have to probably ask for a founder that is like a not a series F or, or or D founder. This is a series A founder that has gone through this in the past like two years to walk you through the entire process, to walk you through the gotchas, to walk through the pieces where they argued, where they, you know, where, where they had suboptimal deals. But really, like, you know, every step of the way, I have to tell you, like, my biggest advice is that don't do this yourself. Don't do this by yourself because a lot of people by your side are walking exactly the same path. A lot of people have learned quite a lot of lessons. There's a lot of help out there. And as a founder, especially from other founders, you will always get help. People will help. People will answer your call. People will jump on a call with you and they will contribute to their time despite the fact that their schedule might be crazy. But, you know, asking other people for help during especially those early stages, I think is is just crucial. 100%. Now. In your guys' case, you know, it has been, you know, quite, um, as you were alluding to it earlier, I mean, you guys have evolved quite a bit. I mean, as the as you were thinking about the market and, and looking at the market, you've also adjusted, you know, the business, you know, perhaps the model. So how would you yeah. say that, that things have evolved uh, and, and how were you able to, to really look at potentially timing the market and then putting in parallel the execution to it? It sounds like you guys have done a really good job. Well, I mean, you know, when we started building Talos, we, we started building in a down market, um, and which was, you know, not great from some perspectives because, you know, there weren't a lot of people that would be talking partnership to us. Uh, you know, from a client perspective, you couldn't secure a lot of client relationships. But actually, it was a blessing in disguise because it gave us time to be heads down and build the right product. Um, and by the time we released the product about a year, year and a half later, we started seeing the, the first emergence of, uh, you know, institutions that are coming into this domain. So in a way, I don't know, you know, whether it's, it's, it's by luck or, or, or skill or, or the combination of those two, that was a great timing for us overall. We were able to come to market with a, with a great, with a product that was solid, that was uh, able to already work in production again. Like we've done this before in every asset class. So we kind of knew what we were building. But to your point, 
you know, you learn um, a lot uh, after you go to production, and especially as the market evolves. So if you really think about where we started, when we started, it was very clear for us. We wanted to make sure institutions can trade digital assets. That's it. You know, we've built exactly these kind of systems before in FX, in, in futures, in fixed income, in treasuries. It was just yet another one of those. We knew the clients. We knew the requirements. This is a system we wanted to put in place. Two years later, and, and definitely today, you know, we are now in what we call phase two. Phase two is very different. Right now, what we're thinking about Talos is that Talos is no longer just a bilateral trading platform. We're doing more than that because in digital assets, you can. We're doing things that we, we wish we could have done in capital markets. Today, what we do is we really start providing this one-stop shop for institutions. So not only just the trading, but also think about what happens before the trade on the pre-trade basis, what happens after the trade. So we have services like portfolio management, treasury management. We have data on our side so people can make the right decision how to trade. On the post-trade basis, we have transaction cost analysis. We have clearing and settlement. We have reconciliation. We have quite a lot of different tools, and now we're adding uh, lending and borrowing. So more and more, you know, like the company has evolved. And again, like it's because you're reading the market and you see what's actually needed. The company has evolved to really provide this umbrella of services to either buy side or sell side institutions to trade. But we're also now, you know, again, you have your hands in the asset class. You know what's going on. We know where we're headed to. And where we're headed to is also very different from where we are today. Today, our focus is providing this kind of services in crypto. But really, what I, what I truly believe is that we are going to see a lot of the traditional asset classes starting to move to digital assets rails. And I, I say this because we are the ones that built quite a lot of the infrastructure in traditional asset classes. And I can tell you that with the tools that we have today in digital assets, we can rewrite and, and optimize a lot of the things that we've done in, in capital markets. So for us, you know, right now, Talos's vision is you know, provide end-to-end -end services, become the one-stop shop for crypto and allow institutions to trade uh, and to, to do other operations in crypto seamlessly. But tomorrow's vision and really our northern star is to do this across the board for every asset class and really become the, you know, the, the framework, the, the kind of like the rails of institutional markets going forward in any asset classes, because we think that there's going to be a pretty serious migration to digital assets. And we want to do this across the world. Let, let, me, let me ask you something here then to expand on that. Imagine if you go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of Talos is fully realized. What does that world look like? Oh man, <laughs> it's a, it's it's a happier world. I mean, look, we again. This is it's it's almost like an intermediate state. But if we achieve this third milestone, right, this this phase three of our company, that means that the entire financial ecosystem is now operating on digital assets rails, which by itself means that there's a lot more transparency into how the money is moving around the world. There's a lot more visibility into it into what's actually going on, where actually is the money, who is doing what with the money, right? And as a result, I think it breeds, um, you know, it, it, brings a, it, it breeds a better economic environment globally. So for instance, you know, we, we often talk about how crypto and digital assets in general can bank the unbanked. This is one of the things that you can achieve. You know, today, if you look at the experimentation that's happening in digital assets, a person that never ever had in a country that, you know, that, that it's not necessarily the, the, the friendliest with the, with the banking sector, right? A person that never had a bank account can potentially, you know, save money, convert them to digital assets, can make yield on those digital assets, can invest in products. 
these are the kind of things that we're, we're getting into. So, you know, I think that the if we're successful, and it's not just us, I mean, we work very widely with a lot of partners, and it's definitely not a, hey, Talos can bring the entire world to the new financial ecosystem. We think that it's, it's, a, it's, it's a path. It's a five to 10 year path. But if we're there, um, we're seeing a lot more efficiency, a lot less risk in the ecosystem. We're seeing a, a completely different global economic environment than what we're seeing today as a result of these tools. You know, yeah, and that's, a, and that's just, you know, like, I'm always, you know, because that's my world, I, I, I talk about finance and I talk about technology in finance. But really, you know, like, because finance is such a critical piece of everything, you can see how that impacts every other thing that we have in life. You know, how the, the companies operate, how social media operates, how people interact with each other. It's a, it's a very wide-reaching set of, um, uh, of things that will happen if the financial environment itself is, is a, lot, a lot different than it is today. Absolutely. Now, imagine if I put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time. I bring you back in time, you know, maybe to that moment where, where you were thinking about, hey, maybe, you know, we do something here, no? And, um, and you were looking into the space and getting excited about having a company of your own. If you had the opportunity of having a chat with that younger self and telling that younger Anton, hey, you know, here is what you should absolutely do before and what you should absolutely must think about before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Well, am I allowed to give myself financial advice? Because I would just tell me just to buy Bitcoin and Ethereum as much as you can. <laughs> just, just, just get just all the money that you have. <laughs> just that's where it goes. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, if it's, a, if, if it's just a advice but not financial advice, um, I would say go faster. I would say go faster. You know, we, we spent a lot of time and we spent a lot of time with people trying to you know, trying to get our heads around, like, what is it, what is it like to, to take money? Does it make sense to take money? We spent tons of time obsessing about tiny details, again, like, like dilution, all this kind of stuff. Later on, I can tell you right now, all those optimizations are zero. It's zero. It's, it's just a distraction. We have a business to build. You know, whether you have 1% more, 2% more, or, or, or 1% or 2% less out of that business, you know, the, the scales here are like, what is 1% or 2% of zero? Nothing, you know? So going forward, worrying about the, the actual, you know, things that matter to the business, the, the market fit, like, honestly, the, the most important thing, which is the team, how do we put the right team in place? How do we scale the team correctly? You know, how do we do this over time? Being a little bit more aggressive in terms of that kind of scale, that's probably the, the, the best advice I give myself. I mean, we were very, very lucky to be where we are. We have spent so much time, you know, making sure that. We have great culture, Ethan and I, that, that's basically the thing that we're, we're obsessed with and, and recruiting. And, and we have a really great team right now that's doing that, that's looking for those people that are super special like, to join our team. We should have put those processes ahead of time, like a while, well before we, uh, well before we did. You know, we, we, I still think, despite, every, despite where we are today, I still think that we were too conservative in the beginning. Got it. And now for the people that are listening that want to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Um, so, you know, obviously, talos.com is the, the website, T-A-L-O-S.com. If you're interested in, in, in our, you know, ecosystem and infrastructure and you want to talk about uh, trading, info at talos.com, we always reply. We always take a look. But that's actually super monitored. If you're, if you're reaching out about anything else, send us an email at 
to uh, info.telus.com and we'll take a look. We're always happy to share partnerships. We, you know, I would say this. The ecosystem here is growing. It's very, very easy to collaborate here. You know, we are seeing that the conversation in, in crypto and digital assets in general is a lot friendlier than, than the, the vast majority of conversations you would have, for instance, in capital markets. Right. So people really do try to help each other. We have very frequent conversation with people that in every shape or form would be our competitors. But we have very friendly conversation with them because everybody understands this is about growing the pie. So we're a very friendly company. We're very open about what we do um, and where we can help. We'll help. Just reach out. Amazing. Well, hey, Anton, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for the time. Thanks for all the help that you're, you're giving people that are, you know, walking this path. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.